let's jump into today's teaching. What I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read the text for this morning. So if you want to grab a Bible, you can open up a Bible. We are going to be in John chapter 10, John chapter 10. And we're right now in the season of Eastertide. Eastertide is the season of Easter, really, starting with Resurrection Sunday and going all the way to Pentecost Sunday. And so this is actually the fourth Sunday of Easter, if you can believe it. And we're in this series right now called Tide, where we're looking at stories from the lectionary that lead us to just show us how Jesus is showing up to people and radically changing their lives through resurrection. And we've been looking at stories of doubters and skeptics and people who literally had to physically see Jesus. We have looked at stories where people are basically leaving town because they've given up because they think Jesus is in the grave. And I'm really excited about this morning because in a second after I read this, uh, a guy named John Tyson is gonna come and actually teach and lead us through this particular passage. It's going to be phenomenal. John is the lead and senior pastor at Church of the City, New York, right in Manhattan. And he's done such a fantastic job with this particular text. I think there's a lot here for us. So let's read the text. I'm going to read it for us. Grab your Bibles. It's also going to be on the screen. John chapter 10. Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this image of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, I want, to begin, I want to begin by putting this passage in context, and I want you to see this very, very clearly, that the passage of this, this passage is primarily a leadership challenge. Whenever we talk about shepherding metaphors, we immediately go sort of devotional, don't we? And we think of ourselves perhaps, you know, in the, in the beautiful hills of, of Colorado or Montana, and there's the shepherd and just a few safe sheep, and they're wandering around and grazing under the shepherd's care. And we have this devotional, intimate sense of Jesus' claims. But I want you to know that that is not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. The context of this passage is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. This is what he says here. This is John 10 verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. So this this metaphor is aimed at the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. So Jesus unpacks this parable, and then the, par- the Pharisees' response in verse 6, Jesus, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus reiterates the same story. So I want you to see very clearly, this is a leadership challenge to the Pharisees. The other interesting thing about this particular passage is the occasion in which it happens. This is a politically loaded and charged environment in which Jesus is giving this conversation. In the intertestamental period between the closing of the Old Testament 
and the beginning of the New Testament. There's a period of about 400 years or so. And we don't speak about them very much. They don't, they're just sort of silent. The Old Testament closes and then Jesus pops up. But really there's these tectonic plates of power and empires rising and falling. And so understanding all of that and how this shaped the people of God when Jesus arrives is very, very important. In Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great conquered the world and around 332 BC, he basically came to the area and overcame where the Jewish community was. And Alexander's vision was not just to conquer people militarily, he wanted to conquer them culturally. His vision was the Hellenization of the world. And so he wanted Greek culture, Greek theater, Greek values, Greek stories to, to take over every other cultural form that existed. So within 150 years, Israel basically adopted a ton. They were were in many ways effectively Hellenized and adopted a ton of these Greco-Roman practices. In fact, they lost touch with their Hebrew roots so much that in order for the people to continue worshiping God, they had to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And this is the Greek translation called the Septuagint. Many of the Jewish leaders were also seduced by this vision of Hellenization. Two famous ones, Jason and Menelaus, basically corrupted and contributed to the demise of Jewish worship and Jewish life. So they partnered with soldiers who refused to enable the Jews to obey the Torah. They made circumcision illegal. They burned uh, scripture scrolls. They put a pagan idol up in the temple and they filled the temple with pig's blood. Desecration of the holy place. In the 160s, as a result of this desecration, the Maccabean Wars erupted. And this was led by a man, was actually the son of a man. Uh, He ended up being called uh, Judas Maccabeus. So his father started the resistance. He died, his son took it up. And his nickname was The Hammer. Think the brave heart of Jesus' day. And he basically fought a series of of, uh, skirmishes using guerrilla tactics that were incredibly effective and much to the surprise of everybody. They were able to throw the opposing powers out and establish an almost 100-year dynasty where Israel was led by Jewish kings. Now, this was incredible because you know what happened? Their promise was that they would be the head and not the tail. If they obeyed the law, the nations would come to their light. And so people had tremendous expectations of the coming of the Messiah. They felt prophetically the stage was being set for another leader. But that didn't last. The Romans eventually come into power just like a war machine like human history had never seen. And they dominated everybody in their path. And so the the children of Israel were conquered and once again found themselves under the oppressive power of the Romans. So I want you to, still with me? Good, good. So what you see right here then is Jesus in the middle of very, very delicate cultural narratives about history, about prophecy, and about power. Now, Judas Maccabeus, in order to cleanse the temple from all the paganism that had taken place, and you're probably familiar with the celebration of Hanukkah, we still celebrate it today, is when he had enough oil after cleansing the temple to light it only for a couple of days, but it miraculously burned for eight days. And so that's why we have these candles that we still celebrate today, the cleansing and dedication of the, of the temple. In fact, the word Hanukkah literally means dedication in Hebrew. Now, so when Jesus is giving this talk right here, and who's Jesus giving the talk to? The Pharisees. Jesus critiques the Pharisees' leadership at the festival of Hanukkah. So to give you perhaps a more modern setting, I want you to imagine uh, a political rally 
at, I don't know, in Washington, D.C., where the current president is giving a speech about our glorious past and building a glorious future. And there being giant groups of protesting people feel like his leadership is illegitimate. And all of these tensions in an area, and in the middle, somebody standing up and say, all of your leadership is rotten, follow me. Can you imagine the, the, the tension that would happen in this place? That's the context in which Jesus is making these claims. This is not devotional. This is not you and Jesus by a stream and he's petting you and holding you. This is a leadership challenge in a politically infused moment. Jesus' life is a threat to corrupt leadership. And this is what we see him say in this passage. So what does he say? Jesus gives a parable. Let's put the photo up. And in this parable, he basically says that the sheep need protection. Our understanding of the wilderness is that it was a pretty placid place. It was just pretty nice rolling hills, gentle slopes. But the wilderness in the ancient Near East was horrible. It was a place of tremendous danger. There was wild animals. There was flash floods. There were steep cliffs that the sheep would fall off. And so at night, if they were exposed, they would be, they would be very in a position of incredible vulnerability. And so these shepherds would bring them into these walled pens, basically so they could protect them and keep them safe. And then they themselves would lay in the door to basically become a barrier of protection where they oversaw any sheep going out and any force coming in. So Jesus' claim here is, I'm the door that protects the sheep from destructive forces from the outside so they can flourish under my care. So Jesus gives this metaphor they would have been familiar with. It's a leadership critique. And then he makes this terrible claim against the powers. He says, Everyone who has come before me is a liar and a thief. That's encouraging, isn't it? You, you see why Jesus ends up being crucified in some sense. I mean, like how far can you critique without the powers that be just pushing back until you're dead? So Jesus gives this central claim. He says, I'm the door. And there's other people who are trying to get in, but they're thieves. They're thieves. So this is what he says. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and they're a robber. Now, I want you to see here the method of the thief, because I think this is in some ways the way the thief still works in our lives today. You've got these legitimate boundaries of protection and the thief is jumping over legitimate established boundaries to sabotage and to steal. And what's the goal of the thief? To steal and to kill and to destroy. This is always the goal of the enemy, steal, kill, and destroy. Now, I believe that Jesus alludes to two different ways that the thief function. One is through religion and the other one is through rebellion. And both of these things are designed to rob the people of God of their peace and their protection. The first one is religion. And this is the one that Jesus critiques very, very aggressively. You see, the Pharisees viewed themselves as the gates to the kingdom of God. They viewed themselves, their teaching, their way, and their lives as the leadership that let people in to flourish. This is an extraordinary claim, but Jesus actually says to them, you're shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven and keeping people out. The way that you are practicing your faith is doing violence and damage to the flock that I care about. Jesus had tremendous compassion for people. Whenever he saw the multitudes that said, he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But here's the thing. The Pharisees were the technical shepherds. So they had shepherds, but Jesus still wept at the brokenness of the leadership that was above them. 
What made, just by way of recap, because I've mentioned this before, but what made the Pharisees' teaching and interpretation of the Torah so oppressive is that they added extra burdens and commands that God himself didn't require of the people and then judged anybody who couldn't meet up to those standards. So what the Pharisees did, you'll remember, they began to study their history and ask the question, why do we keep getting judged by pagan nations? Like, why are we experiencing exile? Why do these intruders keep coming in? We have these covenant promises at the end of Deuteronomy where God says, if you obey these, you will be blessed. And if not, it will not go well for you. And so they began to realize, you know why God keeps judging us? Idolatry and a lack of holiness. So they basically said, let's build a holy nation through adherence to the law. Now, within the law, there was a law within the law. And that was what the priests had to live up to. There were special ceremonial rites and a special call for the priests who were serving in the temple. And so these were only given for the priests on duty. They were not given for everybody else. But the Pharisee says, the Pharisee said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could make everybody so holy that every house was like a temple and every person was like a priest. And so they basically took these priestly commands for those on duty and held them up above the law that God required and then judged everybody who failed to live up to these commands. So sinners in the Bible weren't just those people who said, forget you, God, we don't care about you. Sinners were those who were categorized as not caring about the bonus rules the Pharisees established. The problem with these laws that the Pharisees established is that they basically required wealth and they required access. And many of the poor peasants literally couldn't afford to eat like that or take time off work to observe what was put in front of them. So as a result, their religion became a system of injustice and oppression for the typical first person. Many were pushed out and judged in a way that God never asked them to do. So even perhaps with good intent, it was quickly distorted. And in that system, because self-righteousness is the default mode of the human heart, in that system, those with privilege, those who could practice these bonus laws became arrogant and prideful and they loved the praise of man and they used their power to oppress. Now, Jesus in his leadership comes along and just, I mean, he just... He just gets furious with them. So if you read Jesus' critique in the end of Matthew's gospel about what he says to the Pharisees and the structure they've set up, he basically says, you are stealing and you are killing and you are destroying the lives of the people of God. Except Jesus uses this language. You brood of vipers, you sons of hell, you sons. I mean, Jesus is using all the words, folks. Jesus is going in hard. And in their passion for evangelism, Jesus actually says that when you get a convert, which you cross land and sea to get people to believe what you believe, you actually turn them twice as much into the son of hell as you are. Somebody gasped, and that's an appropriate gasp, (laughs) hearing the text afresh. I mean, who does Jesus think he is to step in and to critique the leadership of the people of God this way? They were called to bring God's heaven to earth. And Jesus says, instead, you're unleashing hell wherever you go. So people were frustrated, but Jesus was angry. And this is what religion always does. Religion always pulls, pulls those who can perform up and judges those who can't and pushes them down. So many people come into the church and they often say, I actually expected to come in here and I've heard about Jesus. I've heard about his mercy. I've heard about his grace. I've heard about his kindness. 
Isn't grace your killer app? Isn't it your secret weapon? Isn't this the thing that sets your, your faith tradition apart from everybody else? And when non-believers or new believers come to the church and they encounter the spirit of the Pharisees, it's devastating, devastating to them. But I want you to see, I want you to see this. Don't give up on the church. Jesus critiqued the Pharisees and hates that part of the church. And so I want you to see that whatever charges you have against, against this sort of oppressive pharisaical religion, no matter what language you use, Jesus used stronger language. No matter how angry you are, Jesus is more angry. He is, he's angry enough to stand up and critique the entire system of his day at great personal cost to himself. So he says, the Pharisees, you are thieves who are stealing and destroying and killing the work of God amongst the people of God. Beware of the Pharisee that sneaks over the boundary of God's word and says, you've got to do more. You've got to do more. You've got to perform or God won't accept you. Because if you buy into that, you'll be robbed. You'll move into the danger of legalism. And legalism is a double-edged sword that pierces the heart of everybody who cannot live up to their own standards. So Jesus says, beware the thief, the thief of religion. The second thing he says, beware the thief. And this is the thief of rebellion. And this is the total opposite spirit. One group is obsessed with keeping laws. The other one says, laws are oppressive. I want nothing to do with them. Tim Keller says this, I love this. Sin always begins with a character assassination of God. This is what the enemy does. The number, one, the number one issue in your heart that you have to contend with and settle in your heart is what is God like? What is he like? This is the fundamental issue of our faith. Is he good or is he bad? And the enemy always wants to say, God's holding out on you. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Rules will oppress you. Boundaries will restrict you. Get to the wilderness. Get free and live however you want. This is what the enemy always does. He just starts by small things. Like, Did God really say? I mean, why would the church honestly believe that? I mean, that just feels oppressive. We live in a culture that reframes everything around justice. And as a result, much of godly morality and thousands of years of respected doctrine, theology, and ethics is being challenged by the simple voice that says, did Jesus really mean that? And what the enemy's plan is to steal and to kill and to destroy. This year for me is a year where I'm abstaining from media in every form possible that I can. Okay? But I have watched a couple of movies this year. Okay? Now, I just want to talk about this. The first movie is, is a, legitimate, a legitimate bypass of my standard because I pre-ordered it last year and it wasn't available. It was only made available on February the 12th. So it's actually like a dispensation of grace where I tried to watch it last year. It was unavailable. It became available. So I'm watching it on last year's time. Okay? Any of you guys see Free Solo? What a film! Second film. The second film I watched... The second film I watched, I honestly did for you. It was a personal sacrifice of my ethics. But Tyler came into the office and he said, yo, man, you watched that documentary on the fire festival? And I was like, I was like, no, man. He's like, it made me want to get off social media and delete all of my accounts. Seriously, it was horrific. And so out of a sacrificial pastoral spirit, I watched that documentary as research for this film. If you're not familiar with... The Fire Festival. It is basically a living parable. It is a modern testamental parable of the illusion of thriving apart from God. It is literally an illusion of life apart from God. So, Billy McFarland and Ja Rule. Let's go straight to that photo. 
Billy McFarlane and Jaro <laughs> teamed up to build an app called the Fire App. And their vision was probably a, a legitimate vision, which was to, to disrupt the complicated managerial book, booking system of putting customers in touch with talent. And this was a legitimate need. If you ever try to book anybody and there's a booking system involved, there's like negotiation and there's multiple layers, and it's like, look, I just wanted to perform at my party. So they come up with this disruptive app that's going to change the industry called Fire, and it put consumers in touch with talent for events. Now, they had this incredible idea, and the idea was, let's do a music festival. Can't be that hard. Let's do a music festival to promote our app. So let's promote the app. So here's what we've got. Welcome to the Fire Festival. My gosh, it's beautiful. Where is that? It's in the Bahamas. It's extraordinary. So what they did, it was in Great Exumers in the Bahamas. Uh, next slide here. Who doesn't want to be that guy elevated above his peers in euphoria? I mean, that guy's literally like so high, he is high. I mean, it's what is even happening there? And uh, they somehow have managed to erect a Brooklyn-like factory on an island in the Bahamas that you can elevate yourselves above your friends in. Incredible. So what they basically do, and I didn't put this on the screen just for the, you know, the sake of you know, visual integrity or whatever, but they basically hired the most attractive models in the world and had them swim around shipwrecks and jet skis and jumping off yachts and stuff to show you that if you came to the fire festival, you could snorkel with celebrities. I mean, this was the actual vision here. Uh, and so you had Kendall, uh, Kendall Jenner, Bella Hadid, Emily uh, Ratajkowski, a lot of these other models. And they promised these cabanas that you could stay in with uh, your friends and they'd be world-class chefs and they'd just be an incredible level of talent. In fact, Kendall Jenner was paid $250,000 to send out a tweet of an orange tile all on the same day promoting it. This is a group of influencers who were paid to distribute this vision. And here's what the vision was. Next slide. It was on the boundaries of the impossible. And honestly, what are you doing next weekend? Do you want to go to the boundaries of the impossible? It's like, bro, I was just going for, for brunch and a nap. How can I resist the boundaries of the impossible? And so thousands of people, 5,000 people, brought tickets to this particular event. Now, the challenge with this is that for the most part, the thing was an actual illusion. There was no preparation. When people showed up, reality began to kick in. Here's what it is. Expectation versus reality. So these computer-generated images versus, next slide, FEMA disaster huts with porta-potties. Next slide. A view of the luxury food court with some luxury school bus transportation at the fire festival. And this next photo basically took it down. A dude with 400 followers destroyed the influence of the most influential influences on earth over a sandwich, crusty bread with cheese and a bad salad. And the New York Times ultimate article, this is the image here, was just like an empty champagne bottle left on a beach in total disaster. Now, the founder of the festival, thinking he was going to get away with it, nothing would happen. Actually, next slide here, is in prison for six years. In prison for six years for defrauding people. 
Now, I want you to see this. All sin is the fire festival, but in slow motion so you don't see it happening. This is what sin is. It may take three years for this ungodly relationship that starts amazing with Instagram love, but ends with a destroyed heart and a broken spirit. It just is happening like a Greek tragedy in slow motion. This is ultimately what sin is because when you listen to the voice of the thief, he just wants to destroy you. He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He does not care about you, does not care about your flourishing, does not care about your purpose, does not care about your destiny. He cares about himself and he wants to take what's yours for himself. And so this is what sin does. Sin comes in and it separates us from God and it ultimately devastates us. We are living, Chris Hedges wrote an extraordinary book called Empire of Illusion. I highly recommend it. And he just talked about how we just live in this world that's a giant fantasy, but when it all wears off, there's nothing but heartache for the human soul. There was an art piece that happened in Vancouver by an artist called I Heart, and it's called Nobody Likes Me. And even though it's an illusion, we still sit here with this deep sense of FOMO that we're missing out on the illusion. This is what happens when the thief comes in with a vision of rebelling against God. Religion is a way that the thief enters in. Rebellion is a way that the thief enters in. Well, into the midst of this claim comes Jesus himself. Jesus steps in and this is what he says, I'm the door. You don't need religion and you don't need to rebel. Trust me, I'm the door. If you come through me, you will find life. And so Jesus, in his claim, in his critique against both religion and rebellion, Jesus makes this claim that if you, if you entrust yourself to him, if you go through God's appointed access points, and if you do this, three things will happen in your life under the care of Jesus. The first thing is this, is that the sheep will listen and know the shepherd's voice. Look at what he says here. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. And this is true. There was a, a, an incredible relationship that would develop between the shepherds and their sheep. During the Palestinian uprising, the Intifada in the 1980s, the Israelis decided as a form of punishment for some of the Palestinian villages that were causing them trouble, one in particular near Bethlehem refused to pay taxes. And so the officers in charge of the village confiscated all of the sheep, all of the sheep from the shepherds and they put all of the sheep in a, in a large pen. And as an incentive to pay, they said, until you pay the taxes and stop rebelling against us, we're going to withhold your livelihood from you. So uh, towards the end of the week, one lady comes up and she begs to have her sheep back. She's a widow. She says, this is my only source of provision. I will literally die without these sheep. So the soldier who's in charge of the confiscation says to her, I mean, like, I mean what do you want me to do? How many sheep out? It's like everybody's sheep is in the pen. And she says, well, I think my sheep know me. And he goes, I doubt it. There's no visible markings. They don't have... Any, anything in their ear to identify them as yours? How do I know that you're not going to steal a bunch of sheep right now? And he says, in fact, if you think your sheep know you, if you can get your sheep to come out, you can have them and you can leave. So her son shows up and he has a little flute, which is often what the shepherds would do. And he just starts playing, you know, plays this little song. And all of a sudden, these sheep look up and they're like, man, that's our song. Yo, man, that's our song. Yo, yo, Tommy, that's ours, man, let's go. And 25 of these sheep move out from the pack and this boy keeps playing and the sheep literally follow them home. Follow them home. 
they had they'd spent so much time together, they literally recognized their own call and in a sea of sheep were able to make their way out and be saved from the confiscation. It's an amazing thing, but it's actually true, is that Jesus makes the claim that he will know us by name, call us by name, and that his voice will become the loudest voice in our life. Now, the reason that this is important, because all of us have these voices in our heads that are trying to get us to listen to them and to follow them. And these voices sometimes can be very, very devastating. Some of you have entered into relationships with people that you didn't even love, but there's voices in your head that say, no one's ever going to love you. So the first person that comes along, you're like, this is better than loneliness. And so you latch on and you're unhappy. All of these voices speaking into our minds, speaking into our hearts. But Jesus comes along and he says, when you hear my voice and you hear my love, you will never listen to those voices again. My voice will be the loudest voice in your life. Now, the second thing that Jesus says here, which really is, 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 is honestly, it's, it's such an amazing passage. It's such an amazing claim is that you'll be led by God. Now, I know that sounds simple, but I want you to see this. See, the central job of leadership of leaders in the Bible, particularly through the Old Testament, leading up to the role of the Messiah, is their job was to lead the people out and to bring the people in. So you see Moses, for example, when God commissions him to lead them out of slavery and to bring them into the promised land, that becomes a metaphor for warfare and worship. This becomes a metaphor for for kingdom and for priests. This is the role and the job they had in the world. And so as Moses is, is aging, And Moses is passing on leadership in his conversation with God. He says to God, who will lead the people out and who will bring the people in? This is in Numbers 27. I think it's 17. And God says to him, Joshua, the son of Nun, will lead the people out and bring them in. This is the primary role of leadership. Remember King David. King David, it says that David led the people out and he brought them in with great skill. Except one year when he failed to lead the people out. And that's the year Bathsheba happened. Lead the people out, bring the people in. This is the primary call. In fact, King Solomon, if you read uh, 1 Kings 3, when King Solomon has his conversation with God, he basically says to God, God says, let me give you anything you want. And he says, I'm a child and I don't know how to lead the people out and bring them in. I literally can't be a a king and a priest on behalf of these people. It's impossible. And God says, because you have a heart to care and to lead, I will bless you with wealth and wisdom. Now, that same passage is what Jesus is talking about here. All of these Old Testament prophecies are talking about the person who's the leader we can ultimately trust to bring us into our kingdom purpose into the world and then bring us back into his priestly heart to enjoy his presence before him. Who will do this? Who can we trust? Who can we trust to give us a cause in the world? Who can we trust to give us a destiny and a purpose? Who can we trust to give us meaning and significance on earth and yet then bring us into his presence so that we're not shaped and and, and develop idolatrous identities by it? So our hearts are formed around him. Who gives us this rhythm of life of being let out and coming in, let out and coming in? It's only Jesus. And ultimately what this leads us to is life, life. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to all of its fullness. Intimacy, protection, purpose, community, belonging, identity, all found with Jesus standing at the gate to keep our enemies out and to keep his presence in. What a gift we have.